Good morning, everyone. What a blessing to worship our awesome God. He is awesome and above all. And that's exactly what we're going to be going through today. So, so fitting. Praise the Lord for his spirit who guides us and his word that just invigorates us and feeds us. And um, just one announcement. We will be having a church meeting after the service today. So we'll have it a little earlier. So we won't be, uh, so about 1130-ish. We'll have the church meeting and just talk about what's going on, some announcements with the upcoming year and uh, the, the children's ministry and other things. So stick around for that. And then the uh, biblical theology course will continue, hopefully at the regular time. So uh, Genesis 28 is where we'll be, starting in verse 10. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for your wisdom, for this time where we can gather in your name to give you honor and praise. Thank you that you are above all the great, the awesome, the mighty God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who speaks to us, the one who has revealed, you've revealed yourself to us that we might know you and walk in your ways. We just ask that you would fill us with your spirit, you would give us great joy as we read your word today, that it would minister to our hearts and our needs, that we would be aware of your presence and we'd encounter the living God today in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. As a kid, I was, we always showed our respect by not running in the church, like some things you don't do. That was the sanctuary. It was God's house. Um, removing your hat for prayer and being silent during the sermon. Do I sound loud? I sound loud to me, really loud. Can we clear that up? Just kind of, okay, that's better. Because I feel like if I talk, that I'm just going to blow it out. So we would call the main hall the sanctuary or God's house, a place dedicated to prayer, worship, and preaching. And, and that's something we see in the Bible, that the, the temple, the tabernacle was called God's house many times. And over time, I learned that it's really, God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, but he dwells in people that he has, have been born again by the Holy Spirit. That the church is not really a place, though we say the church, we say the church building, but the church is the people. It's the people that God has um, redeemed, that he has purchased with his blood. That's the church. And it's very common that we could be revering the gift over the giver. We can put focus on the building rather than the people or the structure rather than the God who has called us and redeemed us. And we see that in, in scripture and in our own lives that Moses, he was more respected than Jesus. The, the bronze serpent that Moses made, it was, it was something people worshiped rather than looking to Jesus who that was pointing to, that it pointed to Christ lifted up for us. And the memorial of God's deliverance can become an idol to us as it was to them. And we could do that with experiences too, where we hear or read about someone else's experience and we're like, I want that. We're almost like someone who's hungry at a diner and we're looking through the menu and we're just like, you know, nothing's really, I'm hungry, but I'm not inspired by these offerings. And then you start looking around and you see what other people are eating. And you're like, oh, what's that? That looks good. I'll take that. Whatever that is, I'll take that. 
And we can seek a spiritual experience because someone else has had it or they were blessed by it rather than seeking God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. And that includes all experiences. So we have experiences when we have God, but it's not that we seek the experience. We seek him and then we experience him. And in today's passage, Jacob, he goes to Haran in obedience to his father. And on the way, he has this unexpected, unsought encounter with the almighty God who appeared to him and spoke to him and made promises to him. And my desire is that when we gather in person or whether you're watching online, whether you're still in bed and you haven't even had a thought about God, that you would encounter God today. You, he would meet with you and you would be aware that he is speaking to you and that he would be exalted and glorified and praised for the God that he is. Not that just we'd have an experience, but that we would know him, that our eyes would see him. We would behold him and proclaim him. You may have come to church just to go to church, but may God meet with us. May God reveal himself to us and transform us by his grace. So Genesis 28, starting in verse 10. It reads, now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jacob had been blessed by God. He'd been blessed by his father, Isaac, as well. And he he said, do not marry a woman of Canaan. You must marry a woman of our people. Go back to your your uncle Laban's house in Paddan Aram and marry a woman from there. And Jacob, he's described as a man of the tents, you know, a mild man. He's, He's accustomed to the conveniences of home. And he probably did watch some sheep and do things around, but he wasn't like a hunter or a a warrior of any kind. And now he sets out on this 800 plus kilometer journey to go to a place he's probably never gone before. It's ironic that he received the blessing of his father, and so he had this great inheritance of wealth and goods and servants from his father, but he goes out with just the clothes on his back, the things he can carry on foot, you know, he has no retinue, no, no 10 camels, no provisions, and not even a pillow. He just heads out on this long journey to meet a woman that he's never met and marry her. That's a pretty, I've never experienced anything like that, ever. So he travels a date, we, we, and we're not told how he felt about all this. We just hear that he was commanded to do it. Don't marry one from here. You need to go there. And so he goes, and as he goes, he travels a day's journey, and he lays down for rest, and he chooses a stone for a pillow, and he's weary. He lays down, and when he fell asleep, he dreamed, and in this dream, there's this ladder that's with the base of it on the earth. It's going up into heaven, and these angels are ascending and descending the ladder on their divine errands. Now, the Bible, it speaks of angels as being God's uh, ministers that he sends, And there's, I'll just go through some basic things about angels, because the Bible doesn't have a a whole lot to say about them, but it's just scattered throughout scripture. Uh, But in showing the supremacy of Christ over all angels, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14 says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? 
Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So we see that they're ministering spirits. In Scripture, we see them being sent, that they can appear, they can assume human form, they bring forth God's message, they can bring divine judgment, they praise and worship God, they just do what God wants them to do. Angels are not the final form of human beings because humans have been made in the image of God. And so we will always be distinct from angels because they were created to serve him and for his purposes. They're not to be worshipped, nor do we see any precedent to pray to angels or to pray for the help of angels. We don't see that in scripture either. But we do see that it's the human impulse to worship what we see as great. Revelation 22, 8, 9, it, it says, Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So those angels loyal to God will direct worship to God and not receive it for themselves. We're commanded to make our requests known to God, not to angels. And if God should choose an angel or set an angel to have charge over us, that's his doing. It's like, I don't need to pray that God would use angels. He can do anything without them, and he could choose to use them. Colossians 2.18, it says that we should not delight in the worship of angels or intruding the things that we don't really know about, puffed up in pride. And all angels, whether elect or accursed like Satan, they all remain under God's rule, his authority, and his judgment forever. And so this ladder from earth to heaven, it was really a revelation to Jacob of what's happening in the heavenlies, the unseen realm now being seen, this connection between earth and heaven, between man and God, where this, this activity is taking place in this vision of the night. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. There's this ladder going from earth to heaven, and it's fitting that the Lord, the living and glorious God, would be above the ladder. He is at the top of it. He is in command. The self-existent, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God, the ever-present God who made a covenant with Abraham, and with Jacob, he, with Isaac, he now reveals himself to Jacob personally. We don't read of Jacob ever having an encounter with God like this before, where God says, I am the Lord, and he starts talking to him directly in this dream. And he makes a promise to him that he had made to his fathers previously, that the land he was sleeping on would be given to his descendants and his, that they would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Again, speaking to someone who doesn't have a wife or a child at this time. So this requires faith, right, to believe what God has promised. But by faith, what comfort, what peace these words would have brought to Jacob's heart, who was very, I would think, troubled with everything that was happening. It would be very stressful. They say that moving is one of the, 
stressful things of life. He'd been sent away from home. He was separated from his mom, Rebecca, who was always looking out for him and helping him out. He knew of Esau's plot to kill him, who was a hunter, who knew those those woods like the back of his hand, right? He knew where he was and what he was doing. And he was by himself. There were no servants around. He's going to a foreign land to get married to someone he doesn't know. And when God revealed himself to Jacob in this dream, it was this moment of decision. Would he choose to believe God or not? Would he choose to heed him or go his own way and just to live by his wits and his own strength? Or would he rely upon God and his promise to say, you know, he, you are, you've been the God of my fathers, but now you're my God. God did not say, it's going to be okay, or hang in there. He said, I am the Lord. And that's so good to know that God says that to us. Like he is over and above all. He is the sovereign ruler of all things that he's created. Everything is under him. Everything is within his control and power. And then he says what he's going to do, what God's going to do. I've given you this land. I will make you fruitful. That in Jacob, his children, all the families of the earth, that includes Gentiles, would be blessed through him. He says that he was with him presently and he would keep him wherever he went. And that word keep, it's to guard or watch or preserve. Jacob didn't need bodyguards. He didn't need a militia. He didn't need servants or weapons because the Lord was with him and would be with him. So they, would, they were never going to be apart wherever Jacob went because the Lord was his God. And so God speaks to him in this time and this promise has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, that Messiah, God made flesh, that descendant of David, the one that he called his Lord in Psalm 110. And so this massive, amazing promise that God made to Jacob, it's applicable to those who are in Christ, that he is our Lord, and through him we have been blessed. That blessing has been fulfilled in Christ. And we see that this promise to be with you and to keep you, it wasn't just for Jacob or just like the the top three patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we see it extended to Moses, right? When God told Moses, you're going to be the one who's going to deliver my people from Egypt, from slavery. And Moses protested. He's like, who am I to do this? God said in Exodus 3.12, so he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And we see that God brought that to pass, right? The plagues, the deliverance through the Red Sea, they came through Mount Sinai. God appeared to them and they worshiped him. After the death of Moses, God spoke to Joshua in Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So we see Joshua, a different tribe than Moses. But God speaks to him. And God says, I will be with you to do the very thing that I've called you to do. I'm not going to forsake you. 
And if you think this is just an Old Testament thing, well, we read Jesus is quoted in Hebrews 13.5. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the promise God made to Jacob and others to be with them, it has been extended to us through Christ by faith in him, that God is with us wherever we go. And isn't that comforting? Isn't that a great source of of joy and contentment and rest? Because God's promised to keep us, so he's with us, he's also keeping us. We know that we are safe and secure with joy, that he's going to be faithful to do all that he's promised. Now, we live in a day, and I don't think it's a unique day, but a day where people are really wanting and maybe straining their ears to hear a word from the Lord, and they're hungry for a fresh revelation. They want to hear God speak. They want to see a revival. They want to see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon people in power. And who do we need more than the God who said, I am the Lord, I am with you, I will keep you wherever you go, and I will do what I have spoken? I mean, isn't that who we need? We need God. We need God. And if we would hear this word that God spoke to Jacob, that God spoke to Moses and Joshua and through Christ in Hebrews, it will do more than just change your perspective or your outlook. It will transform you completely when you lay hold of this reality that God is with us and God will keep us wherever we go. What courage, what boldness, what joy is ours in the Lord because we have God with us, the Lord with us. Now we naturally, we tend to try to be Lord of our own lives. We think it falls to us to be the protector or the provider or the nurturer or helper when all that is found in God. That's what God does. God does all those things, doesn't he? And he gives us the strength to do that as well, but it's him doing it. And we can despair and fret when it actually hits us that we don't have power to change a situation or to actually help somebody in the situation they're in. And we try to fake it till we make it, not believing or relying upon God to make good on the promises that he's already made. We're looking for a fresh revelation and he's already spoken. And this is something that we can take to heart and walk in and it transforms us to know God is with us. And our feelings, they can betray our unbelief. Our frustration, it can expose an unbelieving or a restless heart and covetousness, a lack of contentment. And so when we look at ourselves, we're like, am I someone who actually believes that God's with me, that he's keeping me? Or am I filled with worries and fears and anxiety? When God's promised. So in a dream, God spoke to Jacob. And right now he's speaking to you. And the question is, will you heed him? Will you trust him? Will you believe that? Say, well, I don't feel like it or the situation. Well, look at it. (laughs) Well, God is up over all. He is God. He is the Lord. Let's trust him. Genesis 28, 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and set it up as a pillar 
and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. Now Jacob awakes from his dream with a start. He realizes this was not any ordinary dream or uh, the -the run-of-the-mill dream, but it's like God was speaking to me. This was different. This is real. God is there. Surely the Lord's in this place, and I had no idea. He w- remember, he wasn't looking for God. He's like, where can I find the best rock for my head? Where can I find something a little comfortable in this uncomfortable place? He's thinking about where he's going to lay down and the rock he's going to select, but God then speaks to him. He's not looking for the rock of his salvation, but guess who spoke to him that night? When he wasn't looking for God, when he wasn't thinking about God, it reminds me a bit of Isaiah 65.1 where it says God was found by those who did not seek him. That's a pretty awesome thing to find something you're not even looking for. It's like because Jesus has found us, we found him because he loved us first and he revealed himself to us. I mean, it was, this is the Lord Jacob had heard about. He had heard about this God. He had seen his father's sacrifice. He had heard him probably pray or praise God at times but he had not really met with God before this moment. And it was so exciting, it was sobering and terrifying, where he's like, whoa, God spoke to me. He was overwhelmed with the fear of God and his presence, and he's like, this is an awesome place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jacob had gone to a new place, and he attributed the place being a bit special because he had had this experience there. When, Jacob was, I mean, when Jesus was transfigured in glory, we see the same sort of reaction in his disciples, right? They're like, let's erect three tabernacles. Jesus, for you, uh, Moses, and Elijah. Let's, let's commemorate this occasion by setting up some memorial here. But the particular mountain was of little significance compared to Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who was revealed to them there. That, he's the one, right? Like when you go to Israel today, they're like, this could be the Mount of Transfiguration. It could have happened there. could have happened here. Well, we know who is, right? Jesus. We know that God is. We don't know exactly where it happened. And sometimes it, it's a bit of a distraction when you do know what happened there. Because you, we are drawn to revere a place as holy or sacred rather than having that love and fear of God that we ought to have. So in light of Jacob's dream, let's turn to an amazing thing Jesus said to Nathanael in John chapter 1, verses 50 and 51. So Philip had met with Jesus, and he's like, Nathanael has got to meet this guy. Like, he is this amazing rabbi. He's like nobody we've ever seen before. And so Jesus comes and meets with him. And he says, because Nathanael's like, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's, he's a bit, he's sussing for sure that Jesus is a rabbi or the Messiah. And he says, before Philip called you, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. I saw you. So he's like, I know where your conversation took place when he told you about me. I saw you there. And he's like, whoa, you are the son of God. And Jesus said in verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. 
And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So he says, you will see heaven opened. You will see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now we think back to Jacob's dream, right? There's the angels ascending and descending on this ladder with God as head above it. And he said, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And Jesus is identifying himself as the ladder, the one who connects heaven to earth, the one that connects God with mankind. It's appropriate to say that he is the gate as well because he said in John 10, I am the door, twice. I am the door of the sheep. It's through me that you enter. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It says in John 14, 6. If anyone goes to the Father, if anyone goes to heaven, it's through him. And no one that's going to heaven can find any other way except through him. He's, so in this dream that Jacob has, it's like it's a foreshadowing of the light, life and immortality Jesus has brought to light through the gospel. That Jesus has made heaven accessible to us. The presence of God is now open to us because of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on Calvary. Now, it's been, it's been made clear to us what Jacob could only see dimly. He didn't have the, the information or the revelation that we have in the scriptures that God through Jacob would bless all people by providing Jesus Christ as a savior for sinners, that he provides atonement and forgiveness and salvation by his blood. And when we weren't even looking for him, he called out to us. He made heaven open to us through Christ. I mean, praise the Lord for all that he is and what he has done. Verse 18, back in Genesis, then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Jacob takes that pillow rock. I, I still have yet to do that to use a pillow, or use a rock as a pillow. And it was like a witness. It was a testimony of the dream that he had had. Now, Bethel, it means house of God. Now, his intent in standing that stone and pouring the oil to consecrate it to the Lord was not to honor the stone. It wasn't that the stone was special, like, oh, it's my lucky stone. Like, this thing is great. No, he, he got it. He understood it. It wasn't about the stone at all. It was about the God who had spoken to him in this dream and it was to direct his mind to remember what God had said and to look to the Lord who is above all. And we do see the setting up of memorials in Scripture in response to God's revelation and promise and deliverance. And like the Ebenezer stone, when God thundered against the Philistines, Samuel set that up and says, thus far God has helped us. When we see this stone, we remember God's deliverance. Uh, they were to carry stones out of the Jordan and set them up. That each uh, leader of a tribe, and that was to remind the people of God bringing their 12 tribes out of Egypt into the promised land. And uh, we see these throughout scripture. And there were lots of things in the law that said, when your kid asks you, why do you do this? What's the meaning of the stones? Well, then you say, it's because God delivered us. God gave us his commands. He gave us his promise. And that's why we do this. It's not just, just do it because I say so. You would point to God and say, God did this. God has revealed himself by power, and thus we worship him, thus we honor him. 
In the case of Jacob, he placed his head on the stone and slept. And it's an interesting parallel of the dream that he had. Because in the dream, God appeared and stood, it said, above the ladder that was stretched vertically from earth to heaven. So Jacob, he takes that stone and he sets it on its end and he pours oil on it. It's like a miniature memorial to the God that stood above. So it's almost a picture of his dream where the ladder is vertical, God's above it, and he's saying, uh, honoring to God. And then he makes a vow in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. In response to God's promise of his presence and his protection, Jacob makes this vow, this solemn oath before the Lord. This is the first time we see the word vow in the Bible. I've kind of enjoyed all these firsts in Genesis as we go through and go, oh yeah, we haven't heard about this before. So it's good to talk about it. So if God would be with him, if God will keep him in the way that he should go and bring him back, clothing him, feeding him along the way, then he's like, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up, it will be used to build the Lord's house, a place where the Lord will dwell. And it seems like when you read Jacob's words that he, he, he felt he could negotiate a bit with God. He's like, if God does this for me, then, like if the Lord does this for me, then I will, then he'll be my God. And it's like, well, it's an odd thing to say, really, if you understand what Lord means. Like if he is the Lord, like, you worship him because he's over and above all. But Jacob was still growing in his faith. His response to the Lord is really awesome because he, he's pouring out something of value to him and saying like, yeah, God has spoken. God is real. And if he comes through on everything he said, he's my God. I will give a tenth to him. When God says something, his word is good as a solemn oath. God doesn't need to swear. If he just says anything, we can count on it as if he's swearing, but he doesn't need to. We're prone to forget what God has said. We're prone to forget what we've promised, right? We're like, if God does this, I will do that. And then God does it. And we're like, did I say that? Did I say I was going to actually do something for God if he did something for me? (laughs) We just kind of forget. We're a bit forgetful in that way. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 5, 4, and 5, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. So God's going to hold us all accountable to his word. But Jesus goes further. Turn in your Bibles in Matthew 5 to verse 33. Jesus taught about vows during the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, it's useful for us. Matthew 5, verse 33. Jesus said, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Vows were something you would see in the law. And what developed over time was people would make vows to be seen by others. Remember when Herod had his uh, daughter-in-law, she did her dance, and he, he made a vow. Now, he didn't even want to keep the vow after he said it, but because of the people that were around, he went through with it. So he did it not with a pure heart at all. Now, the vows that were made, it's like people, they were making them really for themselves. They were gaining face in the eyes of people. Another problem was people felt obligated to keep their word only when they had made a vow. It's kind of like, I guess, in modern society, or uh, I forget the movie, Truman Show. If you say something and you got your fingers crossed, you can tell a lie and it's okay. I think it's kind of weird. But, like, I'm only obligated to keep my vow if I, or my word, if I vow. Otherwise, I can just be deceitful or lie. And Jesus condemns that sinful hypocrisy. He says, do as you say and what you say you ought to do. Because God looks at the little things we say as if they are solemn oaths. If I say, I'm going to do the dishes, I should do the dishes. If I say I forgive someone, I ought to release them from the guilt of their offense. A son, in the, And this is another interesting thing, is the son in the parable, when the father said, work in my vineyard, he goes, no. What happened? He thought about it later. He regretted what he said. He realized he was out of line, and he went. He wasn't stubbornly saying, well, I, I said what I said, and I mean it. I'm going to follow through. I'm going to keep my word. But it wasn't a good word. And so he did what was right. He did the will of the father instead of stubbornly holding on to what he had said. So there is a bit of nuance here, but really we should not be uh, deceitful, lying, making a vow to gain face before people, not thinking that God is unaware of what we've said. So better to keep our, and yeah, so better than keeping your word is when you've spoken the wrong thing is to do what's right, but we should speak the truth. We should speak what is right. Going back to Jacob's words, it is possible to translate if sometimes into since. And that changes the meaning a bit. If it said, since God will be with me and keep me in the way I am going, then God will be my God. Right? You could say it that way. Given the context and the flow of the passage, it seems to me if is more likely than since. Now, we have advantages that Jacob didn't have because we see how things turned out for him, how God did, was with him, how God did keep him in a difficult situation in Laban's household. We've seen how he has kept that promise to Jacob and his descendants to bring them out of slavery as he promised, to bring them into the land of promise, to bring the Messiah through their line, and that through them all the nations of the world have been blessed. Like, we've seen the fulfillment of this. Now, do you remember the last recorded words of the gospel in Matthew that Jesus spoke to his disciples? We said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always, even to the end. And what Jacob spoke about in the future, if God does this and does this, then I will. 
We can say that in the present. We can say, since God is with me, since Jesus is the way and he keeps me, since he's given me living bread to eat and he has clothed me with a robe of righteousness, the Prince of Peace, even now preparing a place for me to live with him forever, he is my God. Not he will be my God. No, he is my God. And he can be yours as well. You can enter into that promise of having God with you and keeping you and providing for you and doing everything that he purposes when you trust him and believe him. And our lives are to be consecrated to him even as that stone was, that we would become his dwelling place as temples of the Holy Spirit who is within us. And that stone that Jacob, he, he set upright and anointed with oil, it really points to the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who's referred to as the rock, the chief cornerstone. And by faith in Jesus, we have been made born again. We have been now set upright. We have been made righteous before God by his grace. We've been anointed with the Holy Spirit and empowered to do his will that we would give praise and honor to God. And it's just awesome where Jacob's like, you know, this is going to be a pillar in the house of God. And by the gospel, God amazingly makes us living stones with whom he makes a spiritual house. And we read of this in 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. It says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed my men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And as we continue on in that passage, speaking of Christ's followers of every tribe, nation, and tongue, it says in verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Awesome. What God has prepared, what he has purposed in Christ, the blessing that we have received through his presence. We are to proclaim his praises, and that's the purpose of our lives, now and forever. Jacob promised that if God kept my, his word, of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And like his grandfather Abraham, who gave a tenth or a tithe, so Jacob offered a tithe of all that God gave him as sacrifice. And uh, I like what the Bible Knowledge Commentary says. It says, to give a tithe was an act whereby a person acknowledged that everything he had belonged to God. So that was a way of showing that everything you have is God's and you are giving back to him. And when we give unto the church or to people his service, and it, we're really acknowledging that all we have is a gift from God. Really, we have been purchased with him. We are owned by him completely. Because we've been purchased with something more valuable than gold, we've been purchased with the blood of Jesus. He has purchased us and made us his sheep, the sheep of his flock. So we've been chosen by him, called by grace as his special people, and we are to proclaim the praises of God who is with us, who keeps us, and is coming quickly. We were the ones in darkness, and now he's brought us into his marvelous light, having obtained mercy. Like, we can be looking for mercy. Know that we have it. 
We have it all in Christ. We have life in Christ. We have forgiveness and mercy in Christ. All blessing in Christ. It's in him. I think it's good to close in Psalm 103, 1 through 5. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Jacob's dream was pretty awesome, and you can have some pretty amazing dreams too, perhaps, but there's none that's better or greater than God who is. The one who keeps us, the one who is with us, the one who is and will ever be, the God who loves us. I mean, what? It, at a point, words fail to say how good and awesome God is. But it's good for us to also proclaim him and to praise him. So what, what we're going to do is I'm just going to close with a very, well, I'll just start praying and then open it up and let's just praise the Lord together. Just short prayers, thanking him and praising him for how awesome he is. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you that you are an awesome God who loves us, who has redeemed us, who has blessed us beyond measure. And Lord, we, 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 want, we want to proclaim your praise now. We want to honor and extol and glorify you. And I pray that you would lead us by your spirit in this time, that we would exalt you and praise you for all that you are and all that you've done and all that you're planning, for you are good. Lord, we bless your holy name. We thank you for opening our eyes to see, for bringing us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. That in a land, in a world without hope, that you have caused your light to shine and that you have... You have done everything you have promised and you have given us countless unexpected blessings through your presence and your provision, your protection. Lord, give us, give us eyes to see how awesome you are, that you are the Lord, the exalted, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who forgives us, who heals us, who redeems us, who crowns us with loving kindness and mercy, who satisfies us with what is good who renews our strength and redeems our souls. Lord, we, we praise and worship you, you who are forever. In Jesus' name, amen.